What are the latest strategies for treating and preventing the types of injuries encountered by professional soccer players? Welcome to the Breakthroughs in Sports Medicine on ReachMD XM157. I'm your host, Dr. Sherwin Ho, and joining us today to discuss treatment and prevention of injuries for elite soccer players is Dr. Riley Williams. Dr. Williams is an Associate Professor of Orthopedic Surgery at the Wild Medical College at Cornell University. He's also the Director of the Institute for Cartilage Repair at the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York City. Dr. Riley serves as team physician for several sports teams, including the New Jersey Nets and the New York Red Bulls professional soccer team in New York City. Welcome, Dr. Williams. Thank you, Dr. Ho. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Williams, how long have you been team physician with the Red Bulls? I've been team physician for the Red Bulls. Currently, I'm in my third year. And uh, with the Nets, this is my fourth year. And I know you've also been involved with the uh, professional baseball and football teams there in New York. They have a few. Yeah, I've been, I've been fairly lucky in my travels to have spent some time with the New York Giants football team as well as the uh, New York Metropolitans baseball team. So I've been around the block, so to speak, in New York City. And uh, you yourself are an avid runner. You're part of the New York Roadrunners Club. Yeah, I participate in about eight to ten races a year and also have sort of taken up a little bit of cycling to, to, to give my knees a little bit of a break, take my own advice, so to speak, for patients. In your experience as a sports medicine physician, particularly with the elite soccer players, what are some of the more common and difficult injuries to treat? Most of the injuries that we encounter quite intuitively involve the the legs, the ankles, specifically lots of foot and ankle sprains, sprains about the knee. Actually, not as many catastrophic ligament injuries to the knee itself as, as one might imagine, given the frequency of pivoting and shifting it with their sport. But ACL ruptures certainly are a part of things. Medial collateral ligament ruptures, in, in addition, are also fairly common meniscus tears. And one of the, probably the more common injuries we see are lots of strains and muscle tears about the groin and hip, adductor strains, uh, strains of the hamstring, and, and really quite almost to epidemic proportions, the sort of vague and poorly understood sports hernia is one of the things I've been encountering, you know, three or four times a year in our, in our rather small club. Well, that's interesting. You should bring that up. I think most of the audience, uh, most of the primary care docs out there read about and see a lot about the ACL tear that knocks a guy out for a season. But it's these other injuries that you and I know are so difficult to deal with and, and can ruin much of an athlete's season. And I think the groin pull and then moving on to the uh, sports hernia, those can be the bane of the team physician. Why don't you explain a little bit about what the sports hernia is to our audience? As a basis, you know, everyone is, I think, for the most part, familiar with a regular hernia or an inguinal hernia, which affects basically a relatively well-known weak spot in the abdominal wall down near the pubis. This is a little bit higher. It really has more to do with weakness in the anterior abdominal wall, right right at the level of the pelvic girdle, right in front, involving typically the, the rectus abdominis muscle. It's a really hard injury to diagnose. Patients or the athletes usually will complain of a very vague sense of uh, discomfort, which is progressive. And in the beginning, it's usually not causing a substantial amount of pain such that the, the athlete would want to discontinue activities, but it becomes progressive and, and fairly fulminant. And MRIs and, and ultrasounds and, and, and CT scans, other imaging modalities, are really not all that effective nor are they validated in the diagnosis of this injury. I think it uh, oftentimes becomes almost a diagnosis of exclusion after you've ruled out the more common things, such as a 
groin pull, you know, the groin strain, so to speak. Exactly. Well, let's back up a bit. How would that present in one of your soccer players, typically for our audience? Typically, they'll complain of pain about the mid to lower abdominal cavity, not uh, or abdominal wall, not really down near the inguinal canal or the pubic or the genitalia. It's really, really substantially higher, I'd say, on average, somewhere between 8 to 10 centimeters above the pubic symphysis or the front of the pelvis. It would be typically after training where they're doing a lot of truncal rotation type stuff or maybe after a long game or a long practice. It really, again, they'll come in very vague. You'll have them do all the typical kind of diagnostics of Valsalva maneuvers, you know, have them bear down. It really doesn't have much of an effect on this in terms of worsening the symptoms, but they will be tended to the touch on exam, again, in the anterior abdominal wall. You typically won't feel a defect. You won't feel anything that would suggest that there's a rent or weakness in the wall, but they will have a, a small tender spot usually anywhere from two to three centimeters around the area that's typically affected. Now, have you noticed this being more of a problem in your elite athletes, soccer players included, as opposed to the adolescent or high school athlete that you might see? I have only seen it in my elites. And as you know, when we talk about elite, we're really talking about exposure. An elite athlete of this kind will, will usually be playing soccer or training with soccer in mind on a year-round basis, our, our adolescents, even even those who do the travel teams, don't usually have the same exposure. And what I think happens is, and this is just my own anecdotal thought on it, is I haven't seen a sports hernia in an athlete, and I'm going to pull a number out of my hat here, probably less than the age of 25. And one would think that this is a progressive weakening of the abdominal wall that, that takes place over years of time because, again, most of these players who are on our team are of European descent or from Mexico or South America, where they've probably been very actively playing soccer year-round for many, many years, probably since they were pre-adolescent, even 9 or 10 years old. They show up with this weakness and then basically start to have pain once they reach some clinical threshold wherein the weakness in the wall becomes a pain generator. And I think I would agree with that. We don't see that other than in that high-level Olympic caliber or professional athlete. Correct, correct. So you asked me before, like, how do you manage them? We've managed them in a myriad of fashions. Obviously, the, the simplest is rest and anti-inflammatory medications, maybe with a cold laser. I don't know if your trainers are into that. Certainly mine are with both my basketball and, and soccer teams. It's thought to, to increase blood flow locally to the area. Again, it hasn't been validated, but certainly from the standpoint of sort of throwing the kitchen sink at the athlete, it's certainly there's no downside to it. Local injections have not really been proven useful and we can kind of slide away on a tangent about that a little later if, if you would like to because as you start to then slide into surgical management of this problem, there really is a wide variety of thought on the topic. Anything from reconstruction of the abdominal wall in that area with mesh, which is a more traditional general surgery type approach to the problem, which would require the athlete be out from anywhere from four to six months to a relative plication, if you will, of the supporting fascia or tendon of the rectus abdominis there, which some surgeons, there's a surgeon in Germany who, who's operated on a couple of our players. She, she only recommends that they're out for 7 to 10 days and that they can return to sport after that. So as an orthopedic surgeon, we don't typically operate in this area, but I think I can comment on it or assess it from an objective standpoint. I have to say the, the results from the German approach seem to have been pretty well borne out by the clinical results in our athletes. We've had I believe in the last three years, four athletes have had the surgery. Two of the athletes are still with the club, and, and they're functioning fine with no ill effects. Yeah, in our experience, we, we found that surgery is really the best treatment to get them back on the field as, as quick as possible, and that 
a lot of the non-surgical treatments really haven't been that reliable. I agree. Which type of approach are going to have your players undergone? Uh, the more formal reconstruction of the wall or the or the plication type procedure? The arthroscopic plication is, is what we've been using here in the Midwest, here at the university. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Breakthroughs in Sports Medicine on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Sherwin Hohen. Joining me today to discuss the treatment and prevention of injuries for elite soccer players is Dr. Riley Williams, head team physician for the New York Red Bulls professional soccer team. Dr. Williams, we've been talking a little bit about uh, sports hernias and groin injuries. What are some of the other injuries that you found have been problematic for you in their treatment? I know here in the Midwest, we have a lot of stress fractures and other type overuse injuries that become difficult to treat. But in the elite soccer player, what are some of the injuries you're seeing? Well, we talked about the sports hernia, which is is one. I think uh, probably the most Nettlesome injury we see again are the strains about the pelvis, the groin strains, the hamstring strains, and they're nettlesome not because they're a diagnostic dilemma or that they're hard to treat. It's just that there's very little that we have to offer them as an intervention to get them back to sport or to shorten the duration it takes for them to become clinically viable to get back onto the field. Their sport is a natural sport where there's a lot of acceleration, deceleration, which then requires them to undergo a lot of eccentric muscle contraction around the pelvis. So they're naturally predisposed to this injury sort of on a constant basis, no matter how well-trained they are, no matter how muscular they are. One might argue that being muscular and strong may be even a risk factor for this injury. So we've gone to, in particular with regard to hamstring strains, which I want to say we lost somewhere between 100 and 125 practice and game days last year between players with this injury. John Bergfeld of the Cleveland Clinic has long proposed injecting more severe hamstring strains, those which have a palpable defect, acutely with uh, ultrasound-guided injections of corticosteroid, in particular Kenalog or dexamethasone. And he has contended that not only did this work clinically, but it didn't result in any further risk of re-injury and that it actually shortened the duration to return to sport in American football players, and he's, he's actually written about this fairly extensively. So that isn't something that the gentleman under whom I, I trained, Dr. Russ Warren, the doctor for the New York Giants, he, he sort of took a contrarian view. So it really took the significance of the problem, at least as I saw it with my soccer players, to sort of dabble in it. And I have to say that, again, anecdotally, there's no formal study we've done. I've been very pleased with the results of that approach. Now, on the horizon, I completely agree this is a difficult category of injuries to treat. And at this level of athletics, the strains, the tears of the hamstring, you can talk about quad contusions, on and on, calf strains. Anything on the horizon, Riley, that you see as being something that might get our players back quicker, such as this PRP or other stimulants to try and increase the healing process? Well, I think we're at a bit of an inflection point now in understanding the microdynamics, if you will, of the of the healing process. Everything we seem to be doing now is seems to be trying to locally modulate growth factors, enzymes, if you will, hormones, to basically try to bypass that initial inflammatory phase, which, which as you know, has its good points and bad points with regard to healing. The PRPP, or the platelet ultrafiltrate, really does represent a nice option, if you will. It's basically based on the premise that Platelets themselves harbor anywhere from six to seven known growth factors, insulin-like growth factors, fibroblast growth factors, et cetera, which are known to do a couple of things. They're chemotactic, so they increase new formation of blood vessels and 
pluripotential stem cells to areas of healing. Even in trials now, I know for the treatment of other things, such as tennis elbow and, and the treatment of sort of subacute uh, ligament strains, I just haven't really seen a whole lot in that area which would suggest that the use of that, either in a surgical or non-surgical setting, has resulted in an acceleration of healing for the things that we've seen. But certainly, I think it's an area of ongoing interest, and it's fairly nascent right now. It's probably a little too early to say one way or another if that's going to work. So something possibly for the future and something to keep our eyes on. Absolutely. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Riley Williams. We have been discussing the treatment and prevention of injuries for elite soccer players. You've been listening to Breakthroughs in Sports Medicine on Reach MD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For a complete program guide and podcast, visit www.reachmd.com. For comments or questions, call us toll-free at 888-MD-XM157. Thank you for listening.